Welcome to the Progressive Property Podcast, helping you invest in property for freedom, choice, and profit. You'll learn new, innovative, and multiple streams of property income, whether you want to start, scale, or systemize, and even if you don't have deposits. Hi, I'm Peter Jones, Chartered Surveyor, Author, and Property Investor, and this is the Progressive Property Podcast. And in this podcast, we're going to be thinking all about making offers and some of the terms that we might want to negotiate and agree when we're making an offer, because it's not all about price. In the last podcast, we were thinking very much about the difference between price and value. And I gave you the RICS definition of market value, which basically blows the myth, which goes something to the effect of the value of the property is whatever anybody will pay for it, which sounds like a very reasonable statement. And as a general rule, it's probably good enough for our purposes, but it's not quite technically correct. Now, if you haven't listened to that podcast, I suggest you go back and listen to the previous podcast before you listen to this one, because this will then probably make a little bit more sense. And the reason why I'm covering this topic is because, as I explained in the last podcast, there was a great question posted by Paul McIntosh on the Facebook group, on the Progressive Facebook group. And just as a reminder, here's what Paul said. He said, Hi everyone, around making offers, I'd be really interested in hearing the views of group members as to which camp they're in and why. Do you A, make a very low offer, knowing at the back of your mind it's probably going to be rejected, and then move your offer up in stages to a limit you have to try to secure the deal? Or B, using your figures, you make your one and only best offer and stick with it, even if it does initially get rejected. This offer may not be the magic 15 to 20% BMV. Whichever you choose, what is your reason why? And in this podcast, we're going to be thinking about making offers and negotiations. Now, one of the things which I stressed in the last podcast is that I would never make an offer based on an asking price. I sometimes get asked the question, would you base your offer on, say, 5% below the asking price? No, 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 I wouldn't. I want to know what the property is worth to me. I want to do my own figures and come to my own conclusions. I don't know how that asking price has been arrived at, and we thought in the last podcast as to some of the ways in which an asking price could be arrived at. The only time I can be certain that I'm offering the right amount of money is when I've done my own figures and ignored the asking price. So let's have a think about making offers and negotiating. I have to say that I truly do believe in win-win negotiations. I know that sometimes when I say that, people look at me and their eyes glaze over, they yawn a little bit and say, oh, you know, it's such a, a trite phrase nowadays. But it makes a lot of sense. And I know that some people believe that the art of negotiating is to play hardball and to bully someone into accepting your terms. Perhaps we could call that the Donald Trump approach. Is that a bit unkind, by the way? In fairness, I've never met the man. He might not be like that at all, although I have read his books, and that's how he seemed to negotiate, at least by his own description. But in my experience, if you play hardball, it rarely works in practice. There's every chance that a deal where somebody's been persuaded and bullied into doing that deal is going to unravel. The best deals I've negotiated, and the best deals I've seen other people negotiate, are where both parties come away feeling that they've gained from the negotiation. And, and this may sound very strange, but a good deal could actually be evidenced where both, and I stress both 
parties are perhaps also slightly disappointed, or at least wondering if they could have done slightly better. So if both parties are slightly disappointed, it's probably also a good deal as well. So paradoxically, in my experience, a good deal could be where both parties are both unhappy and happy. So in my humble opinion, the starting point for negotiating great deals is learning the art of communication. That might surprise you. Perhaps you thought I was going to say a good deal starts with doing your due diligence. Well, I'm taking that for read that you understand your figures and you understand why you want to buy the property and the figures that will make that deal work. I want to go a little bit deeper into this because ultimately, and I know that this sometimes confuses people, but it's absolutely true, but ultimately... Property is really a people business, and we can get too hung up on our analysis. We can get too hung up on our spreadsheets. End of the day, if you're going to negotiate, you're going to be negotiating with a person and not with a spreadsheet. So we have to think about what makes people do particular things when they're negotiating. So we're going to start by thinking about communication. Now, by communication, I don't necessarily mean talking, although that is obviously a part of it. More important than being able to express what you mean is the ability to be able to listen and understand to what others mean. And this is what is sometimes called active listening. And this is a key element of all real communication. So what is active listening? Well, let's face it, most people, if they bother listening at all, do so only to be able to put their own point of view. Often they won't even wait for the other person to finish talking. They're just straight in interrupting. This isn't passive listening, it isn't even listening, it's just talking over the top. Even if they manage to restrain themselves, are they really listening or are they just waiting a little more patiently before they get the chance to make their point? Their ears may hear the sound of the words, but it's doubtful if their brains are actually registering what the words actually mean. So the first step is listening to the words, listening to the words of the person that you're negotiating with. Obvious, you may say, but what isn't so obvious is that often we have our own vocabulary. Often we have meanings attached to certain words or phrases which are peculiar and particular to us. We can say the same word or phrase as someone else, but make it mean something completely different. Usually these subtle variations in meaning reflect our different attitudes or our different perceptions. The cliché that the glass is half full is good news to an optimistic person, but a disaster to a pessimistic person. But the phrase is still, the glass is half full. So active listening isn't just about hearing the words, and it's not even just about hearing the words and understanding what they mean to us. It's actually about hearing the words and, crucially, understanding what they mean to the person who's speaking them. From an early age, our view of things is determined by our own experiences, and we tend to look at all future experiences in that context. This means that in practice it's often emotion rather than logic, which is the prime driver of what we do think, feel, and most importantly hear, or we could put another way, interpret. We stick our own emotions, expectations, and meanings onto the words spoken to us. And whoever we're negotiating with is no different. Tony Robbins, the motivational expert and self-development expert, describes this as having filters. We filter everything through our own worldview and attribute our meaning to them. No two people are alike 
and no personal experiences are alike. And so we all have different filters. And this means that two people can look at the same situation and see two different possibilities or outcomes. That's why the glass is half full analogy is so accurate. Some people will see it as being full. Some people will see it as being half empty. It's just the way it is. One may see an opportunity. Another may see a problem. And this applies equally to words and how we give and receive them. To be truly active in listening, we need to be able to firstly try to switch off our own viewpoint. In other words, stop using our filters and in fact use none at all if that is even possible. And then secondly, we need to try to be empathetic. In other words, we need to try to understand where the other person is coming from we need to try and understand what filters they're actually using. How did they get their filters? What's their background? What are their motivations? What are their fears? What do they really need, either from you or from the situation? And a lot of this will be determined by the filters that they have. Understanding the subtext of what the other person is trying to tell us, whether consciously or unconsciously, is a skill all serious property investors need to nurture. Not just for the obvious situations, such as negotiating deals, but in dealing with anybody that you come across in property, in dealing with tenants, in dealing with estate agents, in dealing with managing agents, anybody who you're going to be talking to and communicating with in a normal day's business. The more that you're able to use active listening, the more empathetic you will be, the better you will be able to relate to people, and the better you'll interact with them. Be under no illusions, and I said before, Property is a people business. The better you understand and get on with people, the better and more profitable your business will be. And that might be something of a surprise and maybe even a disappointment if you're a bit of a, an analytical, data-driven person. But ultimately, it's not about logic. Most decisions are made on emotion. And even if that's not true of you, although it probably is, but even if it's not true of you, it's going to be generally true of most people that you deal with. In the context of negotiating, which is what we're thinking about, communication is essential. And this is especially true because in order to get the best deal, you need to know why the other party is selling or buying, depending upon which side of the negotiation you're on. And you need to understand what they need to achieve from the negotiation. If you understand what they need to achieve from the negotiation, that will make it much easier for you to structure an offer and a deal that suits your needs and which is difficult for them not to accept because it also fits with their needs as well. Again, coming back to the win-win. So how do we know what somebody really means? How do we know what the subtext is? In other words, how do we translate their words into language that we can understand? More than that, how do we know whether their words actually reflect what they're trying to say to us? Quite often, it simply comes down to asking the right questions. In the context of being a successful property investor, a lot of the questions we need to be asking might seem obvious. For example, why are you selling? That would be a good question to ask at the beginning, wouldn't it? And the answer may come back as something like, well, I need to raise cash or I want to release capital. And we may just take that at face value. Less experienced investors might stop there, but active listening is like peeling away the layers of an onion. By asking more and more questions and going deeper each time, we can uncover what is really being communicated. 
Now, I'm not suggesting that we get so probing that we're being pushy. There's a subtlety to this, and it takes time, and it takes practice, and it takes building rapport, and it takes building empathy. So, for example, if you've just asked them why they're selling and they say that they want to raise money, it might seem a little bit pushy to ask them what they want that money for. A vendor might feel threatened and clam up. But uh, perhaps you could ask a more innocent question, such as, are you going to use it to buy more properties? That might induce a response which gives a whole new level of understanding. They may say something like, no, actually, I'm going to go and live in Spain, but I need to liquidate my assets first. So let's go deeper. Fantastic. What a great thing to do. When are you going to move to Spain? Well, I'm meant to be going in a month. Ah, you sound like you're not sure if you're going to do it. Well, I wanted to have everything sorted here first. So by asking just a couple of extra questions in an almost conversational way, in being interested and showing an interested attitude, and suddenly we've got a completely different perspective as to what the vendor's trying to achieve. Rather than just being another potential purchaser, we're now actually in a position to be able to help them to solve their problem. And they obviously see themselves as having a problem. They want to make their dreams come true, and we can help them to do that. And in return, perhaps we can negotiate a bargain price in order to help them to have the guaranteed quick sale which they're obviously after. Now, as I said before, before I start negotiating any deal, I make sure that I know exactly what I want to achieve, whether it be the maximum price I'll pay or sell at, and whether it includes other terms and what those other terms are. And I'll try and have an idea of what the vendor, or if I'm selling the purchaser, is likely to want to achieve as well. It's a bit like playing chess. I'll try and see three moves ahead and be prepared for whatever comes back. And I'll do this even if it's a bit of a vanilla deal with an estate agent like a single let buy to let. The same principles apply. Now remember, when you make any offer, ultimately the answer you get back for whatever offer you put forward is going to be yes, no, or maybe. And what I try and do is to think ahead as far as I can, as to how I might react to any of these answers. Now, obviously, if the answer comes back as maybe, that could mean anything. But I try and work out in the context of the negotiation that I'm either involved in or about to commence, what maybe might actually mean. Yes, there could be different permutations, but I can probably make an educated guess as to the response the agents or the vendor is actually going to make. I'm sure you get the idea. So with our different needs in mind, I will have a plan as to how to proceed in negotiations to achieve what I want to achieve. If you like, I'll have a plan of what I'll offer at each stage of the negotiation. Now, of course, I can't always be sure how the other party is going to react, so I have to be prepared to be flexible and maybe have alternatives that I could adopt. One thing which I have realised over the years with negotiations is that every negotiation has its own rhythm and speed, and you need to be able to tune into or even dictate the rhythm and the speed of any negotiation that you're a part of. Often the speed will be dictated by whoever wants the deal most, so try not to want it too much. Be prepared not to actually get whatever it is you're negotiating for, and be prepared to walk away. In other words, be prepared to slow the whole thing right down. One thing you can do, and probably should do, is to leave time between offers. So if the vendor comes back to you and they say, you haven't offered enough money, don't say, OK, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a few thousand pounds more. Instead, say, OK, interesting, I'll think about it. Let me rerun the numbers 
and I'll get back to you. Then leave as much time as you think is appropriate having regard to the speed and the rhythm of the negotiation. And as you're in, in the negotiation, you'll be able to pick up the vibe as to how it's going. Is the vendor really pushing you? Or are you having to really push the vendor? Is it going quickly? Do they obviously want to do it at speed? Or is it going to be slow and protracted? You'll soon pick up where you're going with it. I have to say, and I confess totally, that I've made the mistake many, many times where in my haste to get a deal done, I've pushed it all along far too quickly. And I know I would have done a much better deal if I'd taken my time and not been so anxious. That's why it's actually a good idea to have several negotiations on the go at any one time. Then if one isn't going the way that you want it to, you can always take comfort in the fact that there are other deals which you're negotiating and any one of those might have come off. And that then takes the pressure off you to succeed with the negotiation I first thought of. Now here's a crucial point. It's easy to think that negotiating is all about agreeing the price. It isn't, or at least it isn't necessarily. Price is just one term. What about the other terms? Getting agreement on other terms might actually be more important than agreeing the price. Usually I include other terms in along with the price when I make an offer, most often because I can then drop them during the negotiation. This can help take the other party's focus off the price, and that can be important. If price is important to you, it's a bit like smoke and mirrors, but you're sort of distracting them and actually pointing away from the price to something else. So, for example, I may offer uh, a price and in the context of a single let by to let, I may also say that I want the carpets and the curtains and the fridge and the washing machine, just as an example. And um, you'd be surprised how many times the vendor then gets all quite hung up on the other terms. Not necessarily in a negative way, but it just shows that price is only one of the things that we need to get through. Now, if I need to, I can drop my demands to have the carpets and curtains, washing machine, fridge, whatever. And maybe that will help me to get a better price in the long run. It can also help you to build or maintain empathy with the vendor. Because if you're prepared to back down on some of these other terms, it can make it look as if you're being reasonable and not dogmatic. So other terms could include something like reducing the amount of the deposit you pay at exchange of contracts. Now you have to pay some deposit, but it doesn't necessarily have to be 10%. And there may be cash flow advantages for you in that. So it could be that it might be worthwhile offering a slightly higher price, for example, in order to have the opportunity to pay a smaller deposit at the point of exchange, especially when it's combined with delayed completion, by the way. And you could then effectively take control of the property without putting too much money into the transaction until you get to the point of completion. Another term could be being flexible on the time frame for completion. And picking up on the last point, securing control of the property now might be more important than negotiating every last penny off the sale price. Having a flexible time frame on completion might be more attractive than the price per se. After all, that's pretty much how the concept of options work, where the parties agree that the buyer has the right to buy a property at an agreed price, which is agreed now, at any time during the option period. In return for this flexibility, and on the assumption that prices will rise during the option period, a buyer might agree a higher price than the asking price. Another term could be allowing you to have access to the property to start refurbishment works 
between exchange of contracts and completion. Now, this is a bit of an advanced technique, and you need to know exactly what you're doing and have it all tied up with the proper paperwork. But again, if this is combined with a deferred completion date, this can be very attractive for a buyer. For example, they may know that if they can renovate or redevelop the property and add a significant amount of value, with the result that the end value will substantially exceed the asking price and the cost of the works combined, they might even at completion be able to raise finance against the completed value of the property. And the advantages of doing this might more than outweigh paying a vendor a slightly higher price as an inducement to cooperate. You need to be very careful about how you actually structure that, though, for obvious reasons. Similarly, other terms could be buying the property in monthly instalments, for example. It may be worth paying more than the asking price or the current market value if, in return, the vendor allows you to buy the property over a period of time using monthly payments, perhaps alongside an exchanged contract with a delayed completion. This would be the ultimate no-money-down deal, effectively, and it might allow you to buy the property without having to get bank finance, which could be very attractive. If you don't have to get bank finance, then you don't have to put down a deposit. So it could be well worth doing that, and it might well be worth paying a little bit more. Another term could be asking the vendor to undertake repairs before completion and undertaking them at their own expense. Again, if the cost of the works is greater than the additional amount paid by the buyer, then this has to be worthwhile, especially if the buyer is able to finance against the improved value either at completion or post-completion. As I said earlier, another term is to negotiate to include carpets, curtains, fixtures, fittings and furniture, for example. What about the white goods? And this is something which many investors overlook, but the cost of recarpeting or of replacing curtains or fixtures and fittings can be high. It's not always a given that the vendor will leave these. So if, for example, you know it will cost £5,000 to replace the carpets and the other bits and pieces, it might be worth offering an extra £1,000, for example, to encourage the vendor to leave them. Or terms could be anything else that you can think of which will be helpful or useful to you. Now, flipping it around slightly, a little twist on this, someone I know who is a really experienced negotiator will always ask for a concession if he agrees to a concession. So it could be something along the lines of, OK, because you've asked me to, I'll reluctantly increase my offer by X thousand pounds, but in return, I want X. In other words, fill in the blank. What would you like back instead? But this isn't a hard and fast rule. This isn't a must-do thing, but it can be useful if the other side are pushing for a concession that you don't want to give. But you counter by agreeing, but subject to a concession, you think they might not want to give either. If they can see that you're agreeing because you're trying to get something out of them which they don't want to give, they may actually drop the demand for the thing that you don't want to give. Quite a clever technique. Now, going back to Paul's question... Sometimes I'm asked by new investors, isn't it rude to make a low offer? Well, I don't think it is, although sometimes estate agents act like you're being rude. I know I'm not sure why they do this unless it's just the irritation of knowing that they have to pass the offer on to their client and they think there's no chance of it being accepted. In other words, they just don't like having their time wasted. But I don't have an awful lot of sympathy for that because I see all of this as being part and parcel of the job. It just goes with the territory, doesn't it? The reality is that if the vendor doesn't like your offer, they only have to say no. It's nothing personal. But from your point of view, 
If you don't ask, you definitely won't get. And if you offer too high to start with, it's usually impossible to reduce your offer in a credible manner later in the negotiation without causing an upset. Let me repeat that because I think it's a really important point. If you offer too high to start with, it's usually impossible to reduce your offer in a credible manner later in the negotiation without causing an upset. So I'd rather risk appearing rude by offering too little and then increase my offer than look even ruder by making an offer and then trying to backtrack. Now, of course, I'm talking in a very general sense. There may be good reasons why you want to go back and renegotiate. For example, you may have a survey and the surveyor may highlight things that you didn't even know were in the property. But in a very general sense, though, it is quite hard once you've got a vendor or their agent price conditioned at a high price to start trying to claw that price back down again. Better to go in low and then go up. Then there's the question I'm often asked about buying below market value from a distressed or motivated seller. Usually the question is along the lines of, isn't it taking advantage to make a low offer in those circumstances? Again, very simple answer, and you'll have to look at it on a case-by-case basis. But the vendor is under no compulsion to sell, and they are perfectly entitled to obtain their own advice on value. So I don't think you even need to see it in those terms. But don't forget, we're talking about the spirit of win-win. So you should be asking the questions of the vendor, which will help you to identify their problem so that you can help them to solve it, which means ultimately when you make an offer, it should be an offer which is going to benefit them and which should be attractive to them. So there we are. There's a few thoughts on making offers and how to structure offers. Remember, ultimately, bottom line You need to understand your figures and you need to understand how much you can afford to pay for the property. You need to know the figures at which the property works for you. And that needs to be the whole basis around which you make your offer. Not to do with asking price, not to do with anything else. It's all about what figures stack and work for you. So go out and do some negotiations. Go on to the Progressive Facebook group. Tell us what you negotiate. Tell us how you did the negotiation. Tell us what hoops maybe the vendor made you jump through. Tell us how you overcame those objections. Be very interested to hear all about this. Tag me in. We'll have an interesting discussion about it. In the meantime, I've been Peter Jones. And as I say, if you want to know more about me, please come over to my website, www.thepropertyteacher.co.uk. That's all one word, thepropertyteacher.co.uk. You'll find some resources. You'll find a bit more about me. You'll find my blog, where I've got loads of useful articles and posts and all that kind of stuff, and free reports and videos and all sorts of stuff, which will help you on your property journey. So until the next podcast, here's to successful property investing. Bye.